Welcome to the fifth Ted Hughes Society podcast and the second in a short series of episodes on the subject of Ted Hughes and religion. Once again, our guest speaker is Dr. Mike Sweeting, who will be concluding the contribution he made to the fourth podcast with his reflections on how Ted Hughes's uneasy relationship with Christianity changed in later life. When his poetry shows, as Mike sees it, sorrowing not only for the suffering he's experienced, but also for the suffering he has caused others. Mike looks especially at Birthday Letters, the last collection published in Hughes's lifetime, where Mike detects a change in his attitudes. The poems are not only elegiac, but in a number of cases lamenting. As Mike says, these later poems have a restitutional feel, amends is required, not just sorrow. Mike closes with a reading of three poems which he's chosen as examples of Hughes's changing attitudes to religion and specifically to Christianity. They are Crow Blacker Than Ever, The Shot and October Salmon. I would see Hughes as changing substantially towards the end of his life. If you see the way he grieved and reacted to pain in his early life, it was often about the pain. Whereas in his later life, when things were difficult, it was more to do with sorrow. He actually sorrowed for the death of others. He sorrowed for the pain he'd caused to others. And I do see that as a change, not just I am feeling something. Seeing himself as an animal had failed. An animal can only feel pain but a human being processes pain. I also see a kind of nobility developing in the guy, which is a strange word, not very modern word to use, but in the relation to Gawain and the quest, uh, I think it's a relevant one. Uh, I also studied Parseval a lot, uh, as did Hugh, when I was doing my PhD thesis. And Hughes did keep going back to the Parseval idea of the, wo- the wounded king and so on, which of course is Christ. So maybe we could call it the the nobility of suffering is beginning to actually make a difference. Also, I think he's now in his later life with people who accept him for who he is, not just because he's a great poet, but more importantly, he feels that that that's the case, that I am accepted for who I am. Uh, And you see that kind of affection in in what he writes for the Queen Mother, um, how he seemed to relate to the members of of the royal family, but not just them. Yes, he was more accepted by the establishment. Yes, he was more accepted by the, you know, as a great man of letters and all that. He could see at last that it wasn't positional. He he used to almost walk around with this badge on saying, I am a poet. Adultery is compulsory. Trying to live out something that was always going to have a destructive aspect to it. And now he can see, as he sorrows, harm that he couldn't see he'd caused before. And these meditations in the birthday letters because they all differ in date, and we're not always totally clear uh, in, in the order, it, but nonetheless, we can find a, a different attitude towards what's gone before to what we saw. And is it more biblical? Yes, I, I, I think it is more consistent with biblical Christianity, perhaps, than he would even like. And he's got to go to various religious things that, Maybe he wouldn't go to. He's living in a stable community, a rural community. 
conservative with a small c at the very least. And all these things do seem to me to be affecting. His poetry becomes a bit more elegiac. It becomes more individual rather than individualistic. And of course, he got criticised for some of this, for being banal, often by people who'd criticised him before for being brutal and evil, you know. I see a longing for verities that he had ignored before. There is a restitutional feel to it, isn't there? Amends are required, not just sorrow. This isn't just, oh, well, I'm weeping because I'm sad. Uh, poor old me, it's me. I'm, I've had it rough, you know, it was me. He's considering how things hurt her. So as I move on to look at the poems, um, uh, I, I, I may be a bit hard on Hughes again, but I do see him and his poetry altering, not to suit me uh, and my beliefs, but to experience a degree of healing that, that is greatly needed. I'd now like to look at three poems that I think exemplify some of the matters I've described and which can show some kind of quest it may seem I'm going to uh, lay into Hughes a little bit more, but please bear with me because I'm going to step back and seek to be more objective once we've looked at all three poems. My first poem is Crow Blacker Than Ever. When God, disgusted with man, turned towards heaven, and man, disgusted with God, turned towards Eve, things looked like falling apart. But Crow, 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 nailed them together again, nailing heaven and earth together. So man cried, but with God's voice, and God bled, but with man's voice, man's blood. Then heaven and earth creaked at the joint, which became gangrenous and stank, a horror beyond redemption. The agony did not diminish. Man could not be man, nor God, God. The agony grew. Crow grinned crying, this is my creation, flying the black flag of himself. Very powerful poem, uh, being taken up by others, including Simon and Garfunkel. But my interest is, is in the central part of the poem, because first of all, Hugh sets up what I would regard as a very real insight into the incarnation of Christ and then deliberately subverts it and attacks it with what seems like disgust straight afterwards. So here's the incarnational part. So man cried, but with God's voice, and God bled, but with man's blood. That is great religious poetry. If John Donne had written that, we would have been impressed. Then he feels duty-bound to destroy what he's written. Then her heaven and earth creaked at the joint. So it's like a gangrenous joint, which became gangrenous and stank. A horror beyond redemption. Now, it's interesting, a horror beyond redemption. You know, the idea that redemption is, is finite, that redemption is brief or, or temporary. Obviously, that's how we might have been feeling at the time. But that is exactly the opposite of incarnational theology. So you have somebody who is aware that incarnation is a concept, but it's the one that he's choosing for many years after this 1970 publication to disavow. And although we will find in Remains of Element quite a few incarnational hints, he steps away from that core of the New Testament. And if you get biblical references in later work, they are often slightly heartless observations about the old. Never, never a hostility towards Jesus 
himself. The name God is overused. And I'm going to read you now another one where the name of God is also deliberately overused for emphasis. Poem is The Shot, which is from Birthday Letters. As with them all, it's about Sylvia Plath, but it's about more than Sylvia Plath with a sting in the tail. The Shot. Your worship needed a God. Where it lacked one, it found one. Ordinary jocks became gods, deified by your infatuation, that seemed to have been designed at birth for a god. It was a god seeker, a god finder. Your daddy had been aiming you at God. When his death touched the trigger, in that flash, you saw your whole life. You ricocheted the length of your alpha career with the fury of a high-velocity bullet that cannot shed one foot-pound of kinetic energy. The elect more or less died on impact. They were too mortal to take it. They were mind stuff, provisional, speculative, mere auras, sound barrier events along your flight path. But inside your sob-sodden Kleenex and your Saturday night panics, under your hair, done that this way and done that way, Behind what looked like rebounds and the cascade of cries diminuendo, you were undeflected. You were gold-jacketed, solid silver, nickel-tipped, trajectory perfect as through ether. Even the cheek scar, where you seemed to have sideswiped concrete, served as a rifled groove to keep you true. Till your real target hid behind me. Your daddy, the god with the smoking gun, for a long time, vague as mist. I did not even know I had been hit. Or that you had gone clean through me to bury yourself at last in the heart of the god. In my position, the right witch doctor might have caught you in flight with his bare hands, tossed you, cooling one hand to the other. Godless, happy, quieted. I managed a wisp of your hair, your ring, your watch, your nightgown. To me, it's not a great poem, but it does show this intensity and also this flip-flopping in Hughes's perception. And the fact that he's written this shows that he can see that. So you start with very similar to Crow, really. God, gods, some with a capital G, some with a, a large G. But it's a being who's to be avoided. And he's kind of claiming it's God's fault that Sylvia died. That, you know, Sylvia was like that, you know, that she became this bullet. And then it seems like he's claiming it's her fault that she was so mentally focused. And that the image of the bullet and the ricochet now come through. It seems like he's letting himself off. Now, I was the one standing in the way. You were aiming at your dad. You were aiming at God. But you hit me instead. If we just left it there... It's solipsistic, but the poem does continue. And the image is also rather more subtle than one might think, which is, again, very Hughesian. He's gone back to his old life and his awareness of ballistics and trajectory to, to describe this. As we actually get to the him being hit, you can see that something's becoming transformational suddenly. She, she's killed something in him. Maybe it needed to be killed. I find it rather repulsive that actually he, what he's saying is 
you know, if we'd had a witch doctor, things would be better. And he's referring to uh, various Haitian um, uh, ideas that, that witch doctors could catch bullets. Plains Indians, the Comanches and so on, believed that they could, by, by wearing their, their bone vests, they would capture the bullet fired by the US cavalry. So he knows how absolutely invalid his example is. It didn't work, it doesn't work, and it never will work. And, and, and I find that rather touching, very painful too, because of course, I think the poet realises the same. So he's rejected one thing, taken us to another thing that he himself is meant to approve of, but he knows it actually will not fill the gap. And at the end, we start to see something very different. He claims that being godless works together with being happy and quiet. But what's he got left? A wisp of your hair, your ring, your watch, your nightgown. These beliefs held in this rigid way have done nothing to help him with his grief. And I find such an irony that, again, his accusations of Christianity you know, as being all about rigid belief systems, he's actually beginning to face his own religious belief system. It's over-rigorous. Thankfully, we also have October Salmon, where um, you can see the strengths of his thinking about spiritual matters. And that is how it is. That is what is going on there, under the scrubby oak tree, hour after hour. That is what the splendour of the sea has come down to. And the eye of ravenous joy, king of infinite liberty, in the flashing expanse, the bloom of sea life. On the surge, tide of energy, weightless, body simply the armature of energy. In that earliest sea freedom, the savage amazement of life. The salt mouthful of actual existence with strength like light. All this too is stitched into the torn richness, the epic poise that holds him so steady in his wounds, so loyal to his doom, so patient in the machinery of heaven. Now, this is all about a salmon, theoretically. So if I was feeling at my most, um, I don't know, Calvinistic, I, I'd say, this is idolatrous. He's worshipping a fish. However, if I was going to look at it through the eyes of Christian mysticism, I'd be saying, of course he isn't. He's actually seeing something beyond the fish. And what he's seeing beyond is very valid. And these flashes in hues, even in work which I'd call mid-period, really, are what I think gave me hope when I was researching his work. And it's those flashes that I personally start to see in his later work, giving me a confidence that change was working to some degree. It's not just a fish, it's a reaching into the beyond. And in that, those last bits, we, we get the torn richness. Well, I think that's a good way of describing a fallen world. The phrase, the epic poise, has been taken as a title of a book. But actually, that is also um, what we could call the gospel story. God poised in an epic way to reach down to mankind through the cross. And I think this may even be what Hughes is referring to, because that holds him so steady in his wounds, so loyal to his doom, so patient in the machinery of heaven. That is a cross image, Christ holding himself to the cross rather than Christ being forced to the cross. And again, it's a misapprehension of many religious people that 
God the Father somehow was a nasty, cruel father figure who made Jesus go to the cross. Whereas true Christianity teaches the exact opposite, that Jesus chose a route for you and for me that was based upon love. And that he, in that um, moral sense, nailed himself to the cross. He didn't have to go. He didn't have to do it. It was the didn't have to aspect, the grace aspect, that, again, is so often missed. And remember, we talked about how Hughes had avoided incarnational thinking after 1970. Um, but there's a bit of healing coming back in here. And he is kind of almost against himself being drawn into it. He, in fact, will only connect it to nature poetry. It's no, noteworthy. And I recall a friend of mine who has just very recently died. He was a policeman working in West Yorkshire major crimes. So he dealt with some of the most high-profile, horrible crimes of the late 20th century. He had a very, very simple faith derived from being in the Boy Scouts. He believed he'd taken an oath in the Boy Scouts. And he said to me once, Mike, the hills are my cathedral. I had the privilege of saying something about this after he died. And th this was a man I think Hughes could have connected to as a bridge that he held a orthodox Christian faith, but he found it very difficult to express that within the structures that he saw. It was only at the top of the Pennines that he could really come to meet with his God. And that's the Hughes of Remains of Elmet. As these slashes of light come through the skies, as a cross is illuminated uh, on the a horizon. That's the machinery of heaven. God is always reaching out to us, no matter what our mindset, where we're coming from, and how we do the approach march. Because my final remark would be that um, it's a delusion to think that people kind of wibble wobble their way through their emotional and moral and spiritual lives. Then they come to form a religious view, and then it's all incredibly certain, and there's no wibble wobble afterwards. Actually, that wibble wobble continues and we all change and develop during that journey. I think if Hughes could have seen the fact that Christianity has a journey aspect, he could have found his way in a lot earlier to what we perhaps can see in the last two or three years of his life. I would also like to read a poem, which I think expresses some of the things Mike was mentioning in respect of Ted Hughes's later poems. The suffering of the self and others. The desire to make amends or restitution. Lamentation and nobility. It was written not by Ted Hughes, but by one of his closest friends and collaborators, the great Irish poet Seamus Heaney, who himself had a not uncomplicated relationship with organised religion. The Strand at Loch Beg, in memory of Colin McCartney. All around this little island on the Strand, far down below there, where the breakers strive, grow the tall rushes from the oozy sand. Dante, Purgatorio. Leaving the white glow of filling stations and a few lonely street lamps among fields, you climb the hills, towards Newtown Hamilton, past the Fuse Forest, out beyond the stars, along that road, a high, bare pilgrim's track, where Sweeney fled before the blooded heads, goat beards and dog eyes in a demon pack, blazing out of the ground, snapping and squealing. What blazed ahead of you? 
a faked roadblock. The red lamp swung, the sudden brakes and stalling engine, voices, heads hooded and the cold-nosed gun, or in your driving mirror, tailing headlights that pulled out suddenly and flagged you down where you weren't known and far from what you knew, the lowland clays and waters of Loch Beg. Church Island spires, its soft tree-line of you. There you once heard guns fired behind the house, long before rising time, when duck shooters haunted the marigolds and bulrushes, but still were scared to find spent cartridges, acrid, brassy, genital, ejected, on your way across the strand to fetch the cows. For you and yours and yours and mine fought shy, spoke an old language of conspirators, and could not crack the whip or seize the day. Big-voiced scullions, herders, feelers round haycocks and hindquarters, talkers in byres, slow arbitrators of the burial ground. Across that strand of yours the cattle graze, up to their bellies in an early mist, and now they turn their unbewildered gaze to where we work our way through squeaking sedge, drowning in dew. Like a dull blade with its edge honed bright, Loch Beg half shines under the haze. I turn, because the sweeping of your feet has stopped behind me, to find you on your knees with blood and road muck in your hair and eyes, then kneel in front of you in brimming grass and gather up cold handfuls of the dew to wash you, cousin. I dab you clean with moss, fine as the drizzle out of a low cloud. I lift you up under the arms and lay you flat. With rushes that shoot green again, I plait green scapulars to wear over your shroud. <laughs>